Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Alec Nevela Lee, author of the new biography, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. Paul Goldberger, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of Building Art, The Life and Work of Frank Gehry, wrote about Inventor of the Future. Buckminster Fuller was part design guru, part visionary futurist, part bold technocrat, part New England patrician, and part insecure striver. Until now, we have never had a book about him that portrays the full extent of his complex and contradictory character and explains how he could be at once a quirky iconoclast and an inspiration to technological empires. Alec Nevela Lee's beautifully written Inventor of the Future is the perceptive, nuanced biography of Fuller that we have needed, and it is as engaging to read as Fuller's extraordinary geodesic domes are to look at. Alec has also had three novels published, as well as a previous nonfiction book, Astounding, John W. Campbell, Isaac Isimov, Robert A. Heinlein, and L. Ron Hubbard and the Golden Age of Science Fiction. Alec, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, obviously, you wrote an entire biography that we'll discuss, but if someone listening hasn't heard of Buckminster Fuller before, how would you succinctly describe Fuller and his achievements? So Fuller was a um, an inventor, a futurist, um, and an architectural designer uh, who was most famous uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, his best known artifact is probably the geodesic dome. So if you've seen Epcot Center at Disney World, you know, that's Fuller's influence. If you've seen playground domes or dome tents, you know, that, that comes out of his work. But um, he really was one of the most famous uh, public intellectuals in the world during his lifetime until he died in uh, 1983. And he had an especially big influence on the counterculture and on what became Silicon Valley. I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about um, Buckminster's discovery or um, championing of the geodesic dome? How did that come about exactly? So Fuller, um, you know, it's, it's obviously kind of a long story, um, but, uh, you know, it, it helps us start by kind of defining Fuller as almost like the prototype of the modern startup founder. He, he was someone who, in today's terms, you know, was a serial entrepreneur. He tried to disrupt different industries like housing, especially, but even, uh, you know, automobiles and other areas. Um, and he tried, you know, various things starting in like the late 20s. Um and he was never a great businessman. He he would start companies and usually have uh, you know interpersonal issues with his partners, and everything would kind of shut down. So until he uh, was in his early fifties, you know, he had never really had an unqualified success. Um, and at that point in his career, he was having trouble raising money. You know, he he had estranged a lot of people and had a reputation for being difficult to work with. And so he didn't have a lot of resources. And he'd always been interested in geometry. Um, and so he spent some time working through geometry in very um, hands-on ways. He would go to the hardware store and buy um, wire and string and um, sticks and, you know, th these like um, very basic materials, you know, that he would use to make models um, and experiment with, uh, you know, different polyhedra and, and different um, constructions that he basically made at home. And he eventually realized that... Um, you could make a enclosure 
a, a structure um, based on what he called um, the intersecting great circles of different polyhedra. And, and that's kind of, you know, I, I don't think it's really worth explaining. But, you know, it was a an idea that came out of geometry. It was an idea that kind of emerged almost by accident from these experiments that he was conducting. And, you know, he was uh, in a place where um, the easiest way for him to develop it wasn't by founding a company, but by going to colleges. And so over the next few years, he would conduct a series of seminars at colleges like Black Mountain College in North Carolina and the Institute of Design in Chicago, where essentially he would assign students to research, develop, and build domes. And um, over time, you know, the dome became incredibly uh, successful as a um, radar enclosure. You know, his first big clients were in the military. He worked with the Marines to develop, uh, you know, domes that could be used as advanced bases. He uh, worked with the uh, U.S. Information Agency to build domes uh, that could serve as pavilions for overseas exhibitions. Um, and it kind of went from there. And and the dome sort of became this icon of mid-century design. And it, it was a, an idea that he didn't have until he was already, um, you know, in his early 50s. Well, in 1927, Fuller had an experience at Lake Michigan, which impacted his life and the rest of his life. Can you explain um, what you learned about that experience and what happened? So Fuller had moved to Chicago to work for a company called Stockade, which was um, founded by his father-in-law, actually, uh, to market a innovative kind of um, uh, construction block. Um, and, you know, it's not really worth discussing, you know, the details, but, you know, he worked very hard on this business for, for years and was eventually um, uh, fired uh, from the company. And to him, this was personally devastating. He had a wife and a, a young daughter at the time. And, uh, you know, at, at that point, he was 32. Um, and he had, you know, been working for years on these projects and had, you know, nothing to show for it, really. And according to Fuller, one night in November 1927, he walked to the edge of Lake Michigan, and he was by himself. It was at, it was at night. And he said that he, you know, intended to commit suicide. You know, he thought that his wife and daughter would be better off without him. And, you know, if you, if you know anything about Lake Michigan, this is a very difficult way to die. This is not a jump. This is Fuller swimming out, uh, you know, into the lake until he, you know, gets tired and drowns. But he claims that this is his intention. Um, but instead, uh, when he, he goes to the lake, he starts to ask himself a series of questions. And he, and he says, you know, do I know best or does God know best what, you know, my value is to the universe? And he, he later says he has this huge revelation where he thinks, you know, you do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You do not belong to you. You belong to the universe. And you and all men are here for the sake of other men. And he, he really did claim that at that point, uh, he decided to structure his life in a way that he could be of the greatest service to all of humanity. And, and again, this is a myth. You know, I, I do think that he did go to Lake Michigan. I think this event was very real. Mm -hmm. I think he tended to mythologize it, you know, after the fact, um, because obviously in practice, he was not always a selfless uh, person, um, even after this point. But to him, it, it did feel like a moment when he took stock of himself and, and you know, when he began to really um, conceive his career in a different way than he had before. Well, Fuller kept a daily diary, but he didn't refer to it as a diary. Can you explain his diary to the listeners? So the chronophile is Fuller's um, attempt to keep a comprehensive record of his life. 
And, you know, calling it a diary is partially correct. Uh, it's more of a, like a scrapbook. Um, so everyone keeps stuff from their past, you know, like report cards and letters and, you know, that kind of thing. And with Fuller, you know, what really sets that apart is the scale. He, he really kept everything. And um, up until the late 30s, it's all bound in these like massive volumes that contain things like, uh, you know, his correspondence with his wife, uh, his receipts from hotel rooms, his dry cleaning bills, you know, like a lot of just stuff that he saved. And, um, you know, he, from a fairly early point, he had this idea of keeping this detailed chronological record of his life, um, both kind of for his own reference and later on for what he said he saw as like the the use of future generations you know he thought that this was useful information um and it, it expanded enormously so if you go to the fuller archives at stanford uh today there are hundreds of boxes of um the chronophile, which, you know, initially is this kind of big scrapbook. It evolves over time into just a huge collection of folders and and boxes of uh, letters and papers and, you know, uh, basically, you know, the entire visible written record of Fuller's life uh, is kept and saved in, in one place. And so obviously, as like a uh, biographer, you know, it's very... Uh, it's nice to have this material available, but it is very daunting because there's more of it for Fuller than there is for almost anybody else. And I'm assuming by what you just said that you had access to the chronophile for the book? Yes. So um, after Fuller's death, uh, you know, the chronophile uh, was eventually sold to Stanford along with his other uh papers and archives. So this includes the chronophile, it includes his sketches, it includes models, it includes all kinds of stuff. It's a, it's a huge, huge collection. And it's open to researchers. So, you know, one reason I, I thought this was a good subject to tackle is that I knew that regardless of anything else, I had access to this material. So anybody uh, can go there and make a request to look at uh, these boxes. And, um, you know, obviously for me, it was a huge resource. It, it was incredibly useful to be able to go back and figure out, okay, so what was Fuller doing on any given day? Um, which you, re you really can do if you have the patience and like, you know, are able to like work with the finding aid and like other, other resources, you know, you really can pinpoint what Fuller was doing on almost every day of his life. That's interesting. I'm curious, what was the process for you of deciding to write a biography of Buckminster Fuller? So I've been intrigued by Fuller for a long time. Um, you know, I first discovered him when I was in high school, uh, actually. So I, I grew up in the Bay Area, and um, I discovered him through the Whole Earth Catalog, uh, which was, you know, the sort of this oversized guide to books and tools for the counterculture that Stuart Brand founded in the late 60s. And, you know, it, it was not quite as um, prominent as it, as it had been, you know, when I was growing up, but it was still there. And, you know, Fuller was a huge influence on that book and or on that catalog. And so I kind of discovered him um, that way. I read some of his books and was always um, interested in him, you know, I would say for, for many years. And um, as you mentioned briefly earlier, my previous book was um, a book called Astounding, which was a history of um, the golden age of science fiction as seen through four of those writers. And as a follow-up, you know, Fuller just seemed like the obvious choice because he sort of embodied a lot of those themes that I had uh, explored in Astounding, you know, the idea of this competent uh, science fiction hero who solves problems through design and engineering is, is a huge part of, you know, uh, that genre. And Fuller really kind of um, 
embodied it for a lot of people during his life. You know, people saw him as that kind of hero um, in the real world. And so I thought, you know, in terms of like finding a subject that would allow me to explore some of those themes, but expand the scope, not just to science fiction, but to American culture as a whole, you know, during the 20th century and how it saw the future, Fuller to me was the obvious choice. Well, I'm curious, in the review that I uh, read from at the beginning of the podcast, the reviewer, among his accolades of Fuller, mentions the description, Insecure Striver. How would you respond to that description? I think it's accurate. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny because I, I look back now on my, my conception of Fuller when I first began this project, and it was very idealized. Uh, so there have been other biographies of Fuller before and other books about his work, and a lot of them are pretty uncritical. They, they take his word um, on a lot of things, you know, because toward the end of his life, he was the only obvious source for a lot of stories about, you know, his career. And, you know, they, they didn't have access to all the papers that, you know, you currently do. Um, and so as a result, you know, Fuller, especially toward the end of his career, you know, when he was an older man, he really did come off as being almost like a saint, as sort of this like secular visionary, you know, like a benevolent grandfather figure. And that's kind of how I saw him. But then you go back to his letters and, you know, his diaries and his, you know, correspondence and papers from earlier on, and you see that that older man is the product of a younger man uh, who was not this serene figure. He was a striver. He was ambitious. He did have a lot of goals that were not purely selfless. And, and you know, one important thing that I wanted to do in this book is to kind of see how he evolved and how the story evolved, because you know the, the version of Fuller that I knew and that a lot of people still know is is not the, the Fuller that emerges from his records, from his his papers, and, and it was important to me to kind of um, provide a more balanced picture of who this person really was. Well, I'm curious. You had three novels published uh, as well as short stories that you've written. What led you to writing your first nonfiction book that you mentioned earlier, Astounding, about the golden age of science fiction? So the three novels that I wrote were thrillers, and you know they're they're good books. I, I I'm proud of you know uh, the the fiction I've written. Um, but my real goal uh, or my, my real interest has always been science fiction. Um, you know I've been writing short science fiction for a long time, and I published science fiction in Analog Magazine, which you know was previously known as, as Astounding uh, for for many years. And, um, you know, I, I kind of was at a point in my career when it made more sense simply on a pragmatic level to try to um, enter nonfiction because, you know, my novels had sold well enough, but not quite so well that a fourth novel was uh, a slam dunk. And um, fiction or nonfiction just seemed like a more plausible path forward at that point. And the obvious subject was science fiction, because I know that world pretty well. I had the resume to kind of make a case for myself as someone who could write a good book about this stuff. And, you know, so I was able to like write Astounding. And it was great. It was a fun experience. It got good reviews and it was well received. And it kind of like um, established that I had the skill set to write this kind of big book. And again, Fuller is sort of like the next step. It's like you've written about these writers, you've written a group biography. Well, can you write a long, in-depth biography of this public figure who embodies some of these ideas as, as well? And, and so to me, it was very important to, um, like, as I was saying earlier, to kind of expand the range of things I could write about. And I'm hoping that, you know, now that the Fuller book is out and it seems to be getting a pretty good response from people that I can keep going in that direction. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. And on that note, I mean, um, Inventor of the Future, your Buckminster Fuller biography has just been published uh, this week. Have you started thinking about your next book project? I have. Um, I, I'm not quite ready to reveal what it is mm-hmm. yet. Um, sure. It's 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 almost certainly going to be nonfiction, and in the same vein as the Fuller book, um, I have an idea about who I want to write about, but um, I, I, I'm going to you know hold back on that for now. Sure. Um, but you know, it, it is again like kind of. You know, I mean, as, as a writer, I'm always trying to think about the next project and what does this add to the work I've produced before. And you know, in case of the case of Fuller, you know, it seemed to build on astounding in a very logical way. And I think my goal now is to write another fairly ambitious nonfiction book that builds on Fuller in the same way that Fuller built on astounding. Got it. Well, I'm curious. I mean, you talked about the chronophile and just these boxes and boxes of material trying to compress the life of someone like Fuller, who did lead this life of letters, as well as um, hundreds, if not thousands of public lectures. How did you manage that? What did you decide to leave out versus including? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, so it's physically impossible for one person, I would say, to work through the entire chronophile, uh, at least not within the time frame that is reasonable for producing a book like this. So yeah, I had to be very selective early on. Um, so think about the chronophile that's worth bearing in mind is that it gets bigger over time. Um, so the first half of Fuller's life, let's say up to the 50s, it's manageable. You, you could you could conceivably at least turn every page and look at all the stuff that's there, you know, which I really did try to do at least for the period up until his early 20s, um, because that stuff had not really been covered by other uh, biographers or other writers before. Um, after his early 20s, you have some other secondary sources, like some good academic works to draw from. And those, so those give you, um, you know, some some clues about where to focus your attention. But uh, there are definitely like huge parts of his career that it's very hard to know where to start. Um, so my approach, you know, obviously, is I couldn't read everything, but I had to be like very smart about what I, I chose to focus on. And um, one useful tool was uh, Fuller kept this itinerary of where he went every day. So just physically, where was he? And and again, like everything else in his life, it expands over time. And so toward the end, you know, the itinerary for 1975, let's say, is probably 60 pages long. 
And, you know, he was going everywhere doing lectures and talks and events. This was how he earned his living. And so, you know, he's almost always on the road. And so you can look at this huge itinerary and see where he was, who he was talking to, who he had meetings with, what projects he was discussing. And so I just like went through and read that entire itinerary. And he said, okay, well, this looks interesting. This seems like a project that's worth exploring. I don't know why he's meeting with Imelda Marcos today. I should probably find out, you know, why, you know, he's doing that. And so once you have that list of uh, that, that chronology, you know, then you can start looking at the letters. And the finding aid for the archives is pretty good. And so you can say, okay, I need box 350 because this has a letter that explains why he was meeting with so-and-so on this day. And you just kind of go from there. Um, but it took a long time. It was it was probably a year of just reading and research before I could even start the writing process because there was so much stuff to work through, even, even though I was trying to limit the amount of material I was trying to read. Sure. Well, well, given your experience of writing this biography, which you just explained was, was very daunting and took a lot of decisions, as well as your previous uh, nonfiction work, Astounding, about the golden age of science fiction, um, what, what writing advice would you offer if someone listening um, is interested in, in writing nonfiction and possibly has a nonfiction book idea? Do you have any specific suggestions about tackling a project like this? I do, uh, actually. Thanks for asking. Um, so th this is something that I learned gradually over time. And, and I'm going to give this advice because this is what I've learned worked, has worked in my case. Um, you know, I can't say it's going to work for everyone, but it's certainly something that I wish I had known 10 years ago. So the first thing is that um, if you're trying to tell a story or convey information to the reader about some interesting subject, biography is an amazing form for that to take. You know, I, I've learned so much from reading biographies of, of people. And, and I find that if you're trying to explain something to somebody else, you know, telling the life story of a key figure in that field is a, a great way of, of going about it. So I, I would encourage people who want to write a big book about a, a ambitious subject, you know, it's like, who is who is your best through line, you know, who, whose life provides the most ways of looking at this, 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 these questions. And, and once you've found that person, you know, it actually makes it a lot easier to explain the factual material along the way than if you didn't have like that, that life story to follow. Um, and I would also say, you know, look at uh, archives. I mean, the, the, the number of like archives of papers that are out there that the public can just, you know, access is amazing. So, you know, if you can find someone who's um, significant, unexplored so far in, uh, you know, uh, like a mainstream biography, um, ideally probably deceased so that you, you know, have the entire story and who has, who has papers, you know, that are available to the public, then that is an amazing resource. You know, I, I would say start there. Uh, you know, that, that, that's how I found, or that's how I arrived at Fuller. That's how I arrived at a lot of the people I've written about before. And I think that there are many, many um, individuals who are worthy of a biography who have not yet been the uh, subject of one. That's great. Well, what books have you read recently that you enjoyed, either biography, nonfiction, or, or novels? Um, well, in terms of like recent releases, um, I would say there are a few books I've liked a lot. Um, let me think. I'm just looking at my, my bookshelf now to see what I, I read recently. Uh, probably my favorite nonfiction book that I've read this in the last 12 months is a book called um, Let the Record Show by Sarah Schulman, which is a, a history of the ACT UP uh, movement in New York. Um, and it, this to me is like such a crucial kind of book because, you know, 
archival research, I, I guess my point here is that, you know, I talk about looking at archives and, you know, people who've passed away and, you know, it's like, why, why are we, you know, even spending time talking about these periods or, or these individuals? And it's because they're interesting and they're instructive. You know, you can learn so much from looking at, um, you know, primary sources from a generation or two ago, because a lot of the problems that we're facing now, the challenges are very similar. And, and I think a lot of this information gets lost. And so I've actually been reading a lot about, you know, um, the AIDS, HIV activist movements um, of the, let's say the 80s through like the early 90s, because, you know, these these issues are still here. They're, they're with us. And the amount of material that has been preserved about these movements is is astonishing. And so when I'm trying to figure out, you know, current events or trying to figure out, you know, how do I feel about, you know, some of the problems that we're facing now, like I found that some of the best, you know, like one of the best ways I can, I can think of to address some of these issues is to go back and to think about what did smart people say about this stuff 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your new biography of Buckminster Fuller and your other works as well? Well, so the name is Alec Neville Ali, uh, which is pretty distinctive. So if you Google me, you will find my Twitter feed, which is kind of where most of my stuff ends up these days. Um, I do have a blog, which uh, is not super active at the moment, but um, contains a huge amount of material, not so much on Fuller, but um, if you're interested in science fiction and in the subjects I covered in Astounding, there's probably a whole book's worth of material organized on that blog, you know, if you want to learn more about, uh, you know, that period. So, so yeah, I, I definitely encourage people to check out uh, that site. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Alec Nevela Lee, author of the new biography, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. The book is available now, so go buy a copy. And Alec, thank for, thanks for doing this interview. Uh, thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. On October 24, 1980, a man named Taylor Barcroft drove to San Francisco. He was there to see Buckminster Fuller, the architectural designer and futurist, who was delivering a speech at a wellness conference. After the event, Barcroft headed south with Fuller and a cameraman to Cupertino, where they parked at a building on Bandley Drive. Barcroft had arrived without an appointment, and his entire plan depended on how confidently he handled himself now. Leaving Fuller in the car, he went inside and approached the receptionist. I've got Bucky Fuller here for Steve Jobs. The visit was a gamble, but he had reason to believe that it would pay off. Barcroft, a University of Denver graduate in his early 30s, hoped to produce a series of cable television programs featuring commentary from Fuller. A segment with one of the founders of Apple Computer would be a compelling proof of concept, but instead of calling ahead, Barcroft thought that he would have better luck by showing up unexpectedly with his famous guest. I knew Steve was a fan of Bucky, Barcroft remembered. Anybody like Steve would be a fan of Bucky, and I wanted Bucky to meet Steve, who was going to fulfill Bucky's dream. It was a risky move, but it succeeded. After the receptionist passed along his message, the first person who emerged to greet Barcroft was Mike Markula, the chairman of the company, who spoke with him for a minute as they waited for jobs to appear. Word also reached Daniel Kotke, a mellow but bright 26-year-old, who had met Jobs nearly a decade earlier when they were freshmen at Reed College in Oregon. 
he had become close to Jobs, with whom he later shared a house, and was hired as the twelfth official employee of Apple. Kotke was at his lab bench, which stood in a work area of cubicles and Herman Miller chairs, when someone announced that they had a visitor. Buckminster Fuller's here. He rose immediately and hurried for the lobby, where he saw a cluster of people standing outside. His eyes were drawn at once to two men. One was Jobs, who wore his usual outfit of a casual shirt and jeans, and the other was R. Buckminster Fuller, whose face in those days was familiar across the world. Fuller, 85, was dressed in the dark suit that he favored for all of his public appearances, and in person, he was startlingly small. His driver's license may have said that he was five foot six, but he had been about two inches shorter even in his youth, and his stature had been diminished by age. He had a huge, bald head with white hair trimmed almost to the scalp, a large hearing aid, and black plastic glasses that magnified his hazel eyes into soft, enormously deep pools. Joining the circle, Kotke spoke briefly with Fuller, whose work he had admired since high school. Kotke expected to talk to him further. He was often the one who showed guests around the office. But as the group headed off without him, he realized that Jobs wanted Fuller to himself. As for Barcroft, he couldn't believe his luck. He ended up at a conference table with Fuller and Jobs, who exchanged a few words while a cameraman recorded the meeting. When it was time for a tour, however, Barcroft was left behind as well. Jobs clearly didn't want to include anyone else, and no one would ever know what he and Fuller said to each other in private at Apple, which was only months away from its initial public offering. Afterward, Barcroft took Fuller back to his hotel. Barcroft was elated, but his plan for a cable show never materialized, and he later lost the footage of Fuller and Jobs. For his part, Fuller was unconvinced that the personal computer would enable his lifelong vision of access to information. He didn't believe it, Barcroft recalled. He thought that only mainframes could do that work. Fuller had devoted his career to predicting the impact of technology, but he saw nothing special in Apple. I remember him saying that he thought the computer was a toy. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.